Steve, happy Monday. Yeah, you as well. It's exciting times. Uh, dang, August this week. I know. <laughs> Freaking, uh, yeah, two and a half weeks, I'll be stomping around the mountains with a bow in hand. I still got a little bit. I've been shooting my bow every day, um, but still got some work to do to get that thing really fine-tuned. It's coming down to it. You had mentioned to me in past, I think it was a week or two ago, you were doing some shooting, and I think you said at six yards or nine yards. What were you fine-tuning at that close distance? Oh, uh, I would have been paper tuning, um, and I've kind of come full circle back around on my tuning, especially since I switched over to Hoyt a few years back. Um, but yeah, just paper tuning at six feet and 18 feet. Um, and so that was like paper tune and that's bare shaft too. I'll, I'll, I'll fletch an arrow and then cut off, uh, the vast majority of the vein, just so the base is there, just, um, so, so the weight is as close as can be. Um, and then so I'll paper tune at six feet get a perfect, perfect bullet hole and then step back to 18 feet and repeat. And it's kind of, it's an interesting, cause that way you're, you're basically checking the arrow at, at two different distances to make sure it's staying straight. Um, cause it, it just at six feet, you could be getting something actually weird going on with the arrow, right? That, that, um, straightens, straightens back out. out by 18 feet. And then sometimes vice versa. Sometimes the, the arrows looks like it's a good hole. By the time you get to 18 feet, it's a really bad tear. So, um, it's a good way to do it. I, I, it takes some time. It's super sensitive to grip pressure. I actually, um, it was kind of an interesting thing. And I was like trying to play it back in my head as I was going through that tuning was I did it all without a quiver. And then I put my quiver on and I had, a, it added in about a half inch left tear, um, which was super interesting. And I sat there and debated, what to do like i just spent all this time getting it dialed and eventually i decided that well i'm gonna hunt with the quiver on i, I probably need to tune for this um so i i you know redialed everything back in so that with the quiver on i was getting a tear but said it was so it's so sensitive to grip pressure when you're trying to do that that um uh yeah it, it was uh you're i was getting that quite, quite a bit different tear with the, with the quiver on just adding that extra weight and then i think it changes to level the bow it changes your grip pressure a little bit so but eventually yeah i got that all worked out and then just uh on saturday went and shot broadheads and what i do um for broadhead kind of verification <laughs> is i actually just have a a pretty old school big old three blade broadhead and i'll shoot that out as far you know 70 yards and as if, if those are in my field point group at 70 yards then i know um, like I'll still be shooting solids this year that I know that solids is going to be absolutely dialed. Um, so it's kind of a, a double check for me of put a big nasty broadhead on there that doesn't, isn't going to fly very well. And if it's still flying with my field points, then I know I'm good. I don't know that I've ever seen cutting the veins off and leaving the bases for weight. That's really freaking smart. I've done the bare shafts, like just truly bare, but I've never even thought of doing that. Yeah, you said it's um yeah it's an easy way to do it, an easy way to add the weight. I used to kind of grab tape and wrap it on there, um, and that I think that kind of works too. But um, yeah, it's just an easy way to do it. Especially I had a bunch of I'm shooting the exact same arrow I shot last year, so I just grabbed one of my older ones where one of the veins was already all messed up anyways, and just and just sliced them off. So there's like a maybe a an eighth of an inch of vein sticking up from the base, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it helps um, having that helps on the paper tuning as well because you get you know you can kind of see those marks that the vein cuts through the paper 
sometimes it gets hard to read when it's a complete bear shaft. What have you found with uh, with the grip on that Hoyt? How are you like? Are you modifying it all? Are you running the standard grip? What are you doing there? I completely took yeah. I took the grip off and I'm just shooting off the bare carbon. It's yeah. pretty narrow. Um, and it, I had some suspicions there that maybe it's too thin, and that's why I was getting such dramatic results um, with uh, with putting the quiver on and off. Um, so I really try to remember years past, like, what have I done here? Like, I feel like I usually don't have a quiver on my bow when I'm, you know, it's kind of early in the year. It's January, February typically. And I'm just, you know, in the, in this warehouse working on my bow and I don't think I have a quiver on, but definitely something for people to pay attention to is it, you know, it's even, these are, uh, I shoot a tight spot quiver. They're lightweight. They're super close to the bow to, to reduce the torque added and still going to affect it. So. Any weight feeling there is going to change how, you, like you said, basically how you're trying to re-level that bow. Like you're going to do that in the grip because of the offset weight, even if it's pretty minimal. And that's another, uh, I had a buddy, um, I gave my old bow to a friend of mine, uh, my bow from last year, and uh, I was trying to help him set it up and get it tuned. And I was getting a perfect bullet hole, but just how he was holding it, he was getting about a three-quarter inch left tear. Um, and that's why it's just another reiterate, you can't have... Um, uh, somebody paper tune your bow for you just like somebody can't somebody can't do third axis for you all that stuff is so shooter dependent that you know the bow is taking input from you uh you're you're the one that has to do it yeah i've definitely been there in the past where i feel like i've been getting inconsistent results with paper tuning and you, you want to start tinkering or looking at equipment and sometimes i've realized it's just been me like sometimes i'll come right. back and, and sometimes it's just like I don't know if I wasn't fully focused or sometimes you just come back the next day and you're like, oh, now I'm much more consistent. It was just me. <laughs> Opposite of what you just said. I noticed that last year I was getting some really inconsistent results and my knock was just a little too tight on the string. It was pretty firm clipping on there. And I swapped out knocks and that immediately took care of it. Um, but yeah, it could just be the tiniest little things when you're paper tuning. So it's, it's, it's a reason why historically I abandoned paper tuning. Just it's, it's so stinking finicky. And at the end of the day, all I'm still s- striving to do is get great broadhead flight. Um, and so I would just skip paper tuning and go straight to broadheads. But that's I was working on elites a lot back then, and there's a much simpler system to mess with mm-hmm. um, and, and fewer things to take into consideration. So it's kind of an easier way to do it. Yeah. Well, Botox, that was all unintended. <laughs> we, we weren't <laughs> playing on that. But since we did... Uh, just want to remind you guys the Hoyt giveaway actually ends this week on Wednesday. So, um, here's we move into August. We're gonna have a new giveaway. So to get in to win the Hoyt Helix, you gotta do that this month here in July of 2019. So you have between now and Wednesday. Um, so just go to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast, look for the giveaway link and get entered there. If you want to, uh, be considered to win the Hoyt Helix. So we'll do that drawing here later this week and let you know, let you know who wins. Um, Steve, for this Monday Minute, we we have some just random Q&A, uh, which is perfect. You know, there's so many questions, so many thoughts going through your guys' mind as we're four to six weeks out from a bunch, a bunch of seasons. Um, kick it off with some elk questions, and I think we've mentioned this in the past uh, Monday Minute, but we will have an elk series coming out in August that we're really looking forward to. We're going to dive deep, but just hit some questions. Uh, questions first we'll start with nick from georgia he's headed to colorado um they have 14 days in colorado which is awesome they have multiple tags he's asking 
good strategy, things to consider. If they're lucky and say they tag out on day three or four, still have 10 plus days to hunt. He's kind of just asking for advice on meat care and things like that. So there's a lot that could go into this. Um, it's obviously going, going to depend on the conditions, things like that. But I mean, I would go into this personally with a couple of plans or contingencies. Um, if it's anything like last year when I was in Colorado, I would not want to leave that hanging. There's been years where I've been in Colorado and I'd feel perfectly fine leaving that hanging. Um, but yeah, I mean, it could be hot for sure. So I, I would at that point, especially for 10 days, I'd be looking at a longer term solution and trying to get it to some sort of facility that you could rent some space from just to let that hang. And that's all something you want to figure out, obviously, in advance. Obviously, if you have coolers, things like that, that might work as well. But again, if that meat's not already cool, getting it into a cooler and only relying on a cooler for 10 days could be could be tough. What are your thoughts on that, Steve? Yeah, yeah, it's yes. You're gonna need some plants. Um, the the I know you and and Jared when you guys come out, you have the freezer set up in the back of the truck. They can run on a generator. Um, that's fine, or I think it's a great solution actually. Uh, the only downside is if I think if you're trying to leave, if you're hunting out of a base camp where you're back and monitoring that every day. Uh, you, I mean, that's Mark, easy. you could comment better on this than I can, but I'd imagine you need to be checking that every you know day or two just to make sure that. It, you know, the thing's still frozen and, and good to go. It's not, you just get it frozen and go back out in the field for five, six days. Um, and then, um, yeah, I, I guess if it's 14 days and you kill it on day three, to me, there's no question you're going to run it to town and get it in a meat locker. Uh, I did that when I did Colorado a few years back with the born and raised guys. I killed mine on day one of a seven day trip. And then, you know, everyone continued to hunt the next day while I took the meat into town. And it was like a two-hour drive, but big deal. Ran into town, actually dropped it off. And I, I looked at the rates um, they charged to hang versus the, they charged to cut it up. And, and it ended up being like, man, just cut it up. So they cut it up. I came in um, and picked it up five days, six days later, whatever it was. And it was all frozen, processed, ready to go. I just threw it in a cooler and drove home. And that was awesome. So I think that's probably your best solution the only hang up there is if you're um if you get really really finicky uh about who your butcher is and what meat you're getting back and all that stuff um you know which is a valid concern uh if, if actually as i'm saying that, i remembered uh somehow when i got home and unpacked all the meat i ended up with four tenderloins so i got two tenderloins oh, from somebody else's help you, you did the uh, upgrade package yeah, <laughs> which immediately like, uh, okay, that's great, but did I like, w you know, is all the meat the bull that I killed? Because I'm, yeah. you know, it's it's um obviously I'm a meat hunter and especially with elk meat, and uh, I you know shooting a nice young bull, I'm jacked that's going to be you know tasty and um you know just good meat versus a big old mature bull, and so you just you know, you know I guess you never know what you get back, but I think most butchers are pretty good, um, but. Yeah. Anyways. Um, so yeah, I think that's your, get it to a meat locker, get it up. Um, Mark, I guess you can comment more on how that whole freezer system works and what's the, you know, the week long viability of, of running that, keeping it frozen. For sure. I mean, it, it's going to hold, it's going to hold temperature pretty well. I mean, it's insulated kind of like a cooler would be, but you're definitely going to have to run that and check on it 
if you're even thinking about multiple days, you know, beyond a couple few days for sure. Um, yeah, so for 10 days, you're you're going to have to be checking on that. Um, you're going to have to be going that route. And then just... <laughs> Can you elaborate further for guys what that system is? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's stupid simple. We just take a deep freezer and put it in the back of a truck. Um, that truck happens to have a camper shell as well, so it's kind of contained. We run it off of an inverter um, for the drive out, and so we'll have it pre-chilled. We'll have... Um, some cooler packs we basically made in there, you know, that basically act as ice, all that's pre-chilled, pre-frozen. So you're starting with it cold if needed. Um, quickly, obviously you can run that off of a generator. And then as we pack elk back, we just run it while we're doing the drive back. And so it's running and cooling on the way back. We did learn the first time we did that, um, to think through how you're separating, um, meat bags and things like that, because the, the first time we did it, we just put in all of the meat could just kept it in the game bags put put all the game bags in there and then you know we're running this freezer for 20 hours and we got back and everything was frozen solid to each other in one giant <laughs> you know those wet bloody game bags had just frozen to each other so we literally had to just we couldn't take anything out of the freezer we just had to unload the freezer um, and let it thaw. So now we're much smarter about, you know, putting some sort of barrier separation, whether that's, uh, you know, like contractor bags or Tyvek or something between those bags so they don't freezing together. But that's a little pro tip. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a good option. A lot of guys might not have the ability to do that. Um, but it is a good option. But again, for an extended hunt out of town, I would just have as many options as possible and 100% have all of that pre-planned, like know where you can rent space, know if you are going to do a freezer thing, how you're going to work that with a generator or an inverter. If you're doing coolers, think through a realistic um, timeline for how you might be able to keep that cool, how you would maybe pre-chill those coolers. It's actually so you, yep. you would feel confident like getting it frozen, putting your meat in there, and then heading out in the field for and then need to come back in three days. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Like two, three days, like three. Yeah. would kind of probably be the top end. I would want to check on at least initially. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. It'd be good. Again, it, it kind of depends too on how cool is the meat starting out with and then how cool is the freezer. Um, you know, that, that could be a big factor because obviously adding cool meat, to a freezer and you could say the same for a cooler is going to be much different than adding very warm meat. So like, did you kill a bull in the evening, let it hang overnight and it's already fairly cool when you get it there? Or is it more kill it, pack it out by the time you get back to the truck, it's still quite warm, still needs to go through that cooling process. So there's all kinds of little variables there to consider. Um, but yeah, two, three days, no problem in the freezer. Another good idea there along with, um, is if you, have the ability and you do butcher it yourself i know cody and trent um, born and raised they did this i think last year because they're on the road for so many days they just spent a night in a campground on the tailgate cutting up processing their meat they took all their packaging paper freezer paper and all that stuff and just cut it up right then and there and then that way it was rolled up they threw it in their freezer and you know when they got home it was done that'd be another good option for guys yeah yeah it's worth considering too you know, as you put the meat, like even let's say you're just doing a cooler, keep in mind ambient temperatures in the same way that a cooler will hold cold air. It can also hold warm 
And so there's there's times where you might want to open up a cooler. Like say you're doing a multi-day hunt, you're coming back every couple days or something like that. You might be better off taking your meat out of a cooler overnight, for example, than you would be leaving it in there. Mm-hmm. Um, even thinking of what like Cody and Trent do, there's shoot thinking of when we were in Idaho last year. They had meat in a cooler. I think that was from Wes's cow, but then they're actually just getting that out just because the ambient temperatures were sufficient enough to allow that meat to stay cool. Um, so don't have this mindset necessarily that you need to get it in a cooler and then just leave it there. There's times where you'd be great just getting that out even at night and it could be colder in the elements at night than it would be leaving it in a cooler, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was actually interesting. We had an email this week on advice on pre-chilling coolers. And this guy um, was saying before they leave town for their trips, they actually work something out. I think he said with like their local supermarket where they will take their coolers into the walk-in freezer and they'll put three, four inches of water in the bottom and then just have that as like a frozen layer then. And then as they leave town, they're starting with cold coolers. And, you know, he said they usually pick up some supplies and whatnot from that supermarket, kind of make it, you know, worth their time to do it. But that that's a pretty interesting idea. He's basically pre not putting just cold items in the cooler, but pre-freezing the entire cooler and have this nice, like, big sheet of ice in the wow. bottom. <laughs> yeah, like, if you had, like, a solid three-inch just chunk of ice in the bottom of it, that'd be pretty legit. And then you could just pull the pull the drain and is it is it just slowly melted all the water would run out and yeah yeah you ever really needed a you know if you had one of those a, a really nice kind of yeti style cooler and keep something cold for 10 days that that would do it yeah yeah so i thought that was pretty pretty cool it happened to be good timing with this question yeah um also nick had a, one more question um he said, advice on packing a small tarp for protection while away from camp. He says they may not take rain gear, so just packing a small tarp could be handy if they need quick protection through a storm and or the other uses of having a small tarp, such as when they do get an animal down for a ground sheet. What are your thoughts on that, Steve? Yeah, 100%. Um, I, I do that situationally. Uh, if, if I'm elk hunting in thick country, right, like lots of trees, meh, not worried about it. Um, you know, just find a, a big full tree and crawl underneath it. And that's going to do a really good job for you. Um, and you know, you can sit there and hang out for an hour or two, wait till storm passes. If I'm mule deer hunting, um, I'm not, I'm already in general, just packing a tarp cause that's what I used to sleep with. But there's plenty of times I have used that thing, uh, to set up a shelter in in the middle of a storm where I was kind of exposed. Um, uh, specifically, I can remember a couple of years on a scouting trip where, storm rolled in and I didn't want to bother like dropping down the hill to find cover. I just popped that thing up right there and that way I could sit and continue to glass. And when the storm passed, I didn't have to do anything. I was just, uh, sitting there glassing. And I remember a buck fed out that I ended up wanting to shoot. And I was like, super, super glad that I had that tarp with me at the time. Right. To, um, like I didn't have to go anywhere. I could just stay right where I was. So, um, and I think on Lenny and I up in Alaska I used a tarp a bunch just cause it was raining so much that, it was just a nice, like, a way to get out of it. You know, there was no cover. Uh, it was all just willow brush. Um, so a nice way to get out of the rain in the middle of the day and, you know, heat up some coffee or whatever. So, yeah, 100% great idea. I think just consider it into your – if you're going to do it, I would really consider just having the tarp be your main sleeping shelter as well. Um, 
I know we were, Mark, we were literally, we had a, a big group phone call for all of us. There's seven of us going up to Alaska on our caribou hunt. And I know that question came up. I can't remember who asked it, but it was like, yeah, hundred percent pack tarps. Cause we could, you know, you're going to be away from camp all day long. I've been there. I know the country's open. There's no trees to crawl underneath. I think it's a great idea to have that. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can get something pretty stinking light. Um, yeah, pretty seeing like as as you even mentioned that question could serve multiple purposes. So I, I think it's a good idea. Um, it obviously depends on different variables such as what you know. If you're hunting your style, Steve, you already have your shelter. You're already hunting with camp on your back. You maybe don't need right. a separate tarp as you mentioned. But I think from from the context of these guys, they're probably packing in. You know, they have they have 14 days, maybe set up like a backcountry base camp, and then hunting from camp. In that situation, when you're away from camp, away from your main shelter, away from maybe some of your other gear, having a small um, a small tarp you can throw it up with some trekking poles or tie it out would be would be really smart for sure. Especially if, yeah. if you're you're not packing rain gear. Yeah, and so that would be I'd take that into consideration too. Like if I a tarp would be more versatile to me than rain gear, so I would just take the tarp and not pack the rain gear. And if it was starting to rain that bad, one one. Um, tip i guess i do um because i don't pack rain gear very often and even if it's going to rain in the forecast you know i'm not if i'm not too worried about it and especially if it's september where it could it could be 45 degrees and raining and then all of a sudden two hours later 65 degrees and sunny uh when it does rain i just get in my thinnest wool base layer that i have um and as long as i'm hiking and moving it could probably be you know 40 degrees and i'm just fine and that way I'm just that thin layers getting wet. Um, but it'll also dry out really quickly later in the day. So I either just continue to wear it or if it gets so wet that when, you know, the rain stops, then I'll just put on one of my heavy, take that off, put on a heavier layer and then let that thing dangle off the back of the pack. Or next time you sit down to glass, just kind of lay it out in the sun. Um, it's definitely a, a, an option, a way to consider, you know, versus if it's raining, I think your natural reaction would be like throw more layers on. Right. But um, you don't want to get all that stuff soaking wet and have it be exposed. Yeah, that's good. I just thought I'd pump your ego a little bit. Steve Nick also mentioned that he's been wearing salmon mids and he thinks oh. you're genius because <laughs> he said he's never been more comfortable. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, um, what's funny is I'm in the quest right now. I think we've talked about this of trying to find um, a, a heavy leather boot because there are, I say heavy, but it doesn't have to be heavy, but a good like waterproof leather boot. Um, and it's the, the one thing I found that I need a good boot for is chucker hunting uh, with my dog where um, it's like really steep country that we hunt and you're just side hilling all day long. And my um, I'm always watching my dog and watching the birds. And I found that like my Solomon mids just don't quite cut it in that situation because uh, I'm not paying attention to as much where my feet are stepping. Um, so I, I've been looking for a, a good boot to kind of fill that fill that role. I know we got some crispies on the way. Um, looking forward to testing out. So, um, but yeah, in general, man, if if you're stuck in the um, in the mindset that you have to have an eight inch heavy leather boot, um, you, and your feet, you've been struggling to find something that fits for you, works well, comfortably. Do not overrule um, throwing on a lightweight mid hiker or even a low hiker. And man, um, my feet love them. I know that. 
This question came from someone else, but stick on the elk theme. And I know that we've covered this, Steve, but maybe just elaborate on it from your experience because it does come up quite a bit and applies to something you have a lot of experience with is just, you know, you're hunting with camp on your back. You're wanting to be essentially as close to elk as possible. And if you locate elk, you want to stick with them. Um, how close is too close to camp to the elk and or just tips for if you are staying mobile and maybe you know, sticking with the herd, if you will, like, what are the practical things that come into uh, play for like how you set up camp, tear down camp, live through camp when you know you're in pro- close proximity to elk? Yeah, for sure. You know, it's um, in general, you know, use good common sense practice here, but there's so many th- times we've camped and woke up to elk a hundred yards away from us. I can think of scenarios where I popped my head out of the tent and there was a freaking cow looking at me 50 yards away that, uh, and there was a couple cows behind her. They were just feeding right by us. It was early. I mean, it's obviously it's first light in the morning. They were downhill from us. The wind should have been going that way. Um, and I think they'd been there for a while, you know, like, um, so I don't like in general, we don't really worry about it. We just, whenever it gets dark, um, you know, we, we, we're planning out where do we want to be in the morning. And if it happens to be like right where we're standing, we'll just immediately look for a good spot to pitch the tent. Um, I wouldn't be, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I just, you know, if you, there's been times when, um, we've just pitched camp right there. Cause it was the, it was like the one flat spot we knew was on the mountain and we're right on top of the elk. And we just, you know, we're whispering, we're not clanking, you know, our jet boil and pot together or whatever, right? Or the stove. Um, we're just being super quiet. We're in the tent. We're just whispering, you know, you're not making a bunch of noise and just tear down camp quietly. Like I, I can recall another scenario, just, yeah, literally tearing down camp as a bull was bugling like 125 yards away one morning. Uh, and to me, that's what, like, it's one of the coolest parts about packing up camp every every morning and just taking it with you is you just get to sleep with the elk and it's it's so much more fun than than having to wake up two hours before light and hike in your four miles so um but the, it, there's also plenty of times where um i said like we're still using caution just in some regard right because i mean caution's never going to hurt you if it if it makes sense for us to hike four to six hundred yards like the opposite direction of where we want to be in the morning just so we can like have a normal camp where we're not sitting there just whispering the whole time. You can tell some jokes and laugh and, you know, whatever. Um, we'll definitely do that too. So it's, it's not like we're completely reckless. Uh, but I think just situationally um, we judge it. And sometimes uh, as we talked about before, like it, di- it di- the terrain dictates where you sleep as far as finding a flat spot. And that's why I prefer a tent that has a small footprint. Uh, sometimes you're just forced to sleep right there and it might be right on top of the elk, but I wouldn't be, I wouldn't go into that situation like, oh man, the whole morning hunt screwed up because we're, you know, we're only 150 yards away from where the elk are. Like, I think there's a decent chance they're still going to be right there um, in the morning. So I I guess I would, to knock down your human scent, I'd get that tent set up and if in that scenario, get up and get it set up and get crawled inside of it um, just so that your scent's kind of contained within the tent. I like it. Um, we had a question about doing more content uh, on food and meals, and the listener specifically 
also had some allergies where he had to eat dairy-free, gluten-free, etc. because of actual allergies. I know, man, I, I, I have two thoughts on this. One is there are so many companies these days doing meals, um, you know, dehydrated meals, freeze-dried meals, that type of thing. Not only some that will market directly to the hunting space of, you know, like Spencer at off-grid, off-grid foods is a fantastic option to look at there. Um, but there's all kinds of like niche companies doing these meals. And so I'm sure that there's some that are very specific, um, to food allergies that I'm probably not aware of, but my honest answer to that one would be to just do it yourself. Um, episode 126, we talked about making your own dehydrated meals and that's not for everybody. It doesn't need to be every for everybody, but I would say specifically, if you do have certain, um, allergies, it's a great way to go because I, I can only imagine that a, the options are limited on the market for those, um, meals. And then B, it gets really expensive, especially on those more niche and specialty ones with the allergies. So I would, I would just again, say, don't be intimidated by looking at creating your own meals. Um, it's really easy. We talked about it in that episode um, and haven't done it myself. It's way easier than I thought it would be. Um, so I, that honestly, that's my answer is just probably do it yourself if you have allergies. Beyond that, Steve, call it this post mountain house world <laughs> where mountain house <laughs> used to be all there was and now there's a ton of options. Um, I know that you've tried some different things recently. You don't have to address the allergy concerns, but like, what are some of the things that you found that you really like now beyond Mountain House, if you will? Um, man, I mean, to be honest, yeah, the the homemade stuff. Uh, Tyler Boschma is a good friend of ours. His wife made some, and and he he brought them on the elk hunt last year. And man, I'm, I I I was actually listening to an old podcast where I was, I told somebody like that I'm never not like every meal ever in the future is going to be homemade and here I am two and a half weeks before season and I haven't done anything about it yet. Um so <laughs> I'm probably call be Kylie stuck. Yeah, call call Kylie up, Callie up. Um and um but uh um yeah, those are so stinking good, man. And and um off-grid's really good. Uh, definitely like them. Heather's Choice has some meals that I really like and a couple that I didn't like. So I think you just got to be, uh, find out what you like there. Um, there's just tons of them now. I, every year I go, this, this is the first year I've missed in a while is the outdoor retailer show. And you were talking about, you know, food marketed towards hunters. Yeah. There is a whole plethora of companies popping up out there that are making very healthy, you know, um, organic gluten-free, blah, blah, blah. Uh, stuff where if you have certain you know allergies um that there's a lot of good options out there now um but it's funny is food is still not something that i've ever um really gotten into the nerdy techie side of it i'm i've um you know I've, i've just kept it really simple um with just protein bars and just stuff i could go buy over the counter have it done and ready. There's no meal prep I have to do. It's it's all just basically stuff with wrappers on it and in packaging. There's there's zero homemade stuff that I'm doing uh, traditionally. But it was um, the podcast we did with Lampers on the I think the Honey with the Pros series we did. Um, it may I was looking about it like it may be a reason why I only hunt four to five days because after four to five days I kind of feel miserable and, and want to get out of there and get a real real meal in me. Um, so maybe there's something to that, you know, if, uh, he was talking about, 
you know, it's easy to get by for the first bid on whatever, but nine days into a hunt, that's when things really start mattering. And, uh, yeah, it, it kind of made me reflect and look back on myself because I've naturally adapted to, I like to go in an area and really hunt it hard for three to five day trip. And if I haven't killed something, I'll pack out of there, rest up a little bit and then, and then run into new country. Um, and, uh, that, but maybe that style has been adapted that way because of food and maybe I should look at, look into it deeper and see if I can do a better job of getting my body the, the fuel that it needs and stay out there longer. I like it. Well, we have, uh, we have some more questions. We'll save those for next time. Cause, uh, we've got to go ship some packs, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are finally shipping. Thank the Lord. Um, I know guys are frustrated out there and waiting and I trust me, we are going as fast as we can, brought in a bunch of extra help. Uh, some former employees of ours have, are coming in in the evenings after work, coming in early, coming in on the weekends. I'm actually forcing you, Mark, here to fly out here this weekend, and and we're going to spend Saturday and Sunday just cranking and building packs and going to get these things out the door as fast as we possibly can because, trust us, we want them out to you as, as bad as you want to get them. So we're, we're working on it, uh, but it, stuff takes time. A, a pack, we get the assembled um, – or the uh, the parts from our two sew shops, and then we have to do all the QC on them and all the assembly on them, and essentially it takes 30 minutes a pack. Um, per, you know, for one person, it takes 30 minutes to to kind of go through everything, and that's with doing them. Um, you know, we kind of got assembly lines going and and stuff like that, and it just takes time. So it's it's not like uh, these don't just show up from China in a package all wrapped and labeled, and we just throw them in a box and ship them to you it's uh, there's a process to it so uh we're working on it we'll get it caught up and get these out to everybody i, I feel confident everyone who's ordered to date will have them before season for sure so we'll get them out there and hopefully uh, like i said looking forward to people putting them to use and getting reviews and pictures and, and all that fun stuff yep for sure so yeah we'll be back um last week uh this week for the roundtable series on wednesday and then next week we'll be into august already so in august we're gonna have a new giveaway um some new podcast series and all kinds of fun stuff so continue to send in some questions for monday minute no matter what that is we're happy to to tackle those and answer those and then specifically um you know we have that caribou hunt in september so as we get closer to that we're we're going to start chatting a bit more about that and some of the logistics that go into that and just questions around that so if you have even specific questions not for this season for your hunts we're we're happy to do those but like just for say alaska in the future if that's something you're curious about curious about let us know what questions you have there and we'll tackle those as well so to back in wednesday we'll wrap up the roundtable series and it's going to be an episode you don't want to miss we basically take all these guys from the round table and get them to boil it down. Like in the end, what contributes most to their success and the success that they've consistently had over the years. So I'm blown away by some of their answers. You won't want to miss it. Tune in Wednesday. We'll see you then. Steve, thanks for the time. Yep. 